Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with speculation about a rift between Vice President Harris and her staff and the White House staff, which, given the President's poll numbers and the weighty issues on his plate, is the last thing Biden needs. Joining us is Lincoln Mitchell, a professor of political science at Columbia University, where he also serves as an associate scholar in the Salzman Institute of War and Peace Studies. He's the author of numerous books on the former Soviet states, baseball and democracy, the latest of which is The Giants and Their City, Major League Baseball in San Francisco, 1976-1992. We'll discuss his article at CNN, Harris and Buttigieg Could Be Allies Instead of Rivals, and this unnecessary distraction about intra-party fighting on top of the fratricidal wrangling that has gone on over the infrastructure bills when the Democrats face the daunting challenge of Republican voter suppression that could render them a permanent minority party into the future, regardless of the will of the majority of American voters. Then, with the verdict in the Ahmad Arbery case coming down today, finding all three white men guilty of killing a black man, We'll look into the extent to which this verdict, as well as the verdict against the organizers of the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, will act as a deterrent against right-wing supremacist violence, which the FBI considers our greatest domestic threat. Joining us is Echo Yanka, a professor of law at the Cardoza School of Law at Yeshiva University, whose research focuses on criminal law and theory, political theory, policing, and voting rights. He also serves on the executive board of the Innocence Project and the American Constitution Society New York chapter, and his publications include A Paradox in Overcriminalization and Good Guys and Bad Guys, Punishing Character, Equality, and the Irrelevance of Moral Character to Criminal Punishment. With Trump and right-wing media celebrating Kyle Rittenhouse for killing left-wing protesters, we'll discuss the importance of holding leaders of the January 6th insurrection like Roger Stone and Steve Bannon to account if democracy and the rule of law are to continue to have meaning in the United States. And before we go to our first guest, while Background Briefing remains a nationally syndicated radio program with a growing national and international audience, we are relying more and more on our online and podcast audience to sustain us for as little as $5 a month to keep this program alive during the critical years ahead in which the fate of American democracy will be decided. For those of you who can, help us keep delivering a daily briefing so those not in a position to contribute at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate can also join in the fight against disinformation, whether it comes from Mar-a-Lago or Moscow. We must win the political warfare battles underway and fight with weaponized facts to save our democracy as we create a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Lincoln Mitchell, a professor of political science at Columbia University, where he also serves as an associate scholar in the Salzman Institute of War and Peace Studies, the author of numerous books on the former Soviet states, baseball and democracy, the latest of which is The Giants and Their City, Major League Baseball in San Francisco, 1976 to 1992. He has an article at CNN, Harris and Buttigieg Could Be Allies Instead of Rivals. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lincoln Mitchell. Thank you for having me back, Ian. Always a pleasure. Well, thanks for joining us. And um, the there was an article recently at CNN that revealed tensions between Vice President Harris and her staff 
and the White House. And it was quite a lengthy article, uh, the title of which was Exasperation and Dysfunction Inside Kamala Harris's Frustrating Start as Vice President. So it's obviously very damaging. I mean, Biden obviously has an enormous amount of problems on his hands as his poll numbers drop and as the Build Back Better plan twists in the wind that, you know, it's fate being determined by a couple of senators, Cinema and Mansion. So this is the last thing he needs. Let's begin with how this story began before we talk about what you've recently written, Lincoln. Do you believe that there is a problem here based upon the reporting from CNN? Well, I know that somebody wants us to believe there's a problem there, and that somebody is either the Republican Party who is concerned that Biden will be too old to run and they will have to run against Harris, so they want to begin taking her out now, or a rival within the Democratic Party. Is there an actual problem? I don't know. To some extent, this is kind of normal Washington gossip that we can dismiss. But I will say this. If I were the president or the president's communication team, I would make it very clear that this has to end. First of all, they need to make they need to get good stories about out there about Kamala and they need to make sure there's a no leaking policy because there is nothing in this that is good for President Biden. And do you think then that there is a a rivalry uh, between Vice President Harris and Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg? You know, when you write a column, you never make the, the title, right? So I'm not sure I would call it a rivalry. We do know that Pete Buttigieg is very ambitious. I don't mean that in a negative way, but we know that Pete Buttigieg wants to be president one day. Uh, the evidence of that is that he already ran for president when he was in his you know mid to late 30s. And the likelihood that Joe Biden will not run for re-election, regardless of what he's saying now and what he has to say now, because he will be 82 on election day, in 2024 means that people are looking that 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 the circling around positioning to be the next nominee is beginning early in the first term as opposed to probably early in the second term when it usually would. I don't know that there's a rivalry, but Buttigieg is the only cabinet member who really has a chance to run in 2024. And of course, Harris does as well. So there is certainly the potential for a rivalry there. Well, we know that presidents, you know, can't declare themselves lame ducks. And you normally do the second term, and the fact that you have a second term means that you get a lot more done in the first term. So to some extent, Biden is limited, and Teddy Roosevelt, of course, famously said he wasn't going to run again, and that was the worst thing he ever said, and wished he could take those words back, and then eventually ran as a bull moose candidate. But he made himself a lame duck. I guess it's a bit of a dance that Biden is acting out here, right? He can't say I'm not going to run again for obvious reasons. But on the other hand, a lot of people expect him not to run. Is that a fair summary? That's absolutely right. I actually wrote that piece before the election in 2020 saying that Biden cannot send signals that he's going to be a one-term president because not only does he become a lame duck president, but then Harris becomes a target for any Democrat that wants to be president. So if he makes it clear tomorrow that he's not running for re-election, Harris is the immediate front runner for the nomination And then you have kind of open season on Kamala Harris within the Democratic Party, which means open season on Joe Biden. And it is worth reminding that 2024 is not going to be a normal election. It is going to be an effort by the forces of authoritarianism, almost certainly led by Donald Trump, to get back in power and to use whatever shenanigans they can. So this is not a normal election. So but Biden has to signal for as long as he can that he is running for re-election. But at some point, it may stop being plausible. 
you know, he's a man in his late 70s, a minor health hiccup, and he's not running again. And that kind of thing happens all the time. So tell us about your suggestion in your article, then, Harris well, and Buttigieg could be allies instead of rivals. Here's my thinking. If this were Joe Biden winding down his second term and we were looking towards a primary, I might say, you know, I don't really care who the Democratic nominee is, and I'm not thinking about it, you know, this early, if this were a second term instead of his first. Nor do I necessarily believe that in the perfect world, Kamala Harris is clearly the best nominee for the Democratic Party, although I believe on balance she's a pretty good one. And right now she's getting a lot of negatives, but nobody's really probing the negatives of a Cory Booker or a Sherrod Brown or anyone else whose name you're hearing right now. But the real issue is this. She's the sitting vice president, a position from which it is usually very easy to get your party's nomination. Think of George H.W. Bush. Think of Al Gore. You can even go back to Richard Nixon and Hubert Humphrey in the 1960s. So there is a sense among many in the party that she is the person who will be the nominee. And many of those people aren't as active on kind of Twitter and left-wing media, but they're a huge voting block. And here I'm thinking specifically about African-American women. And I know that Kamala Harris is not universally beloved among African-Americans, but she is very popular among African-American women. We've seen a lot of data to say that. So the question facing the Democratic Party collectively, but also any individual thinking of running you know, for president if Biden doesn't do it, is do you want to have a big fight with the highest ranking, most influential, most popular African-American women, woman in presidential political history. And that just cannot be good for the Democratic Party. So given where we are now, the smart thing for the Biden administration and for the party leadership to the extent possible is to bolster Kamala Harris, who, who I think is a much better politician than her 2020 uh, short-lived presidential campaign would suggest, because the process of getting someone else will be very damaging to the party, even if it is somebody as talented as Pete Buttigieg. So from that respect, I think Harris, I think it is the path of least resistance and the smartest thing to do is just to, to rally around Harris right now. And then you think of what you also cannot have is a fight between a cabinet member and a vice president trying to position themselves so that they can be better off when they try to run for president. So bring Buttigieg in now. He's so young. He could, if Harris loses, he could still run in, in, in 2028. If Harris wins, he could run in 2032 and only be 50 years old. So it seems like a natural. Now there's some, you know, not everyone's going to be delighted with that ticket. No one, there's never been a Democratic ticket with whom, with which everyone is delighted. But it's better to do this than to have a fight land on, I don't know, Cory Booker or Gina Raimondo or one of these names that's being thrown around and then realize that this is also a flawed candidate who the Republicans take, can take apart with the usual negatives. And, of course, there's a, a lot of discussion now that Buttigieg will become a very important cabinet member because of $555 billion all going through his hands through the Transportation Department in terms of uh, switching the grid to renewables, etc., in the uh, Build Back Better plan. And not that that's a done deal, right? But will that be a factor? In other words— Well, he will not just be a very important cabinet member. He will be a very visible cabinet member. And that will be good for Buttigieg. So he will raise his national profile. But if he uses that raised national profile to get in a fight with the vice president, then Biden has to fire him. If he uses that, to, and I'm not, I don't, I'm not trying to say anything negative about Pete Buttigieg because I don't know what he's going to do. But if he really thinks that he's running for president, he has to take out Kamala Harris, and he does that from his position of tr secretary of transportation, Biden has to fire him. And I cannot imagine Biden wants to be in that situation. So he's going to be high profile, which means he will have a national profile as something other than this very smart, interesting mayor of a small town. 
but as a cabinet secretary who is delivering the goods, delivering the good news, understands complicated domestic policy. That's not a bad place to be as the, as a what will be in then in his early 40s running mate. I think it's a perfect fit. So where do you think the CNN reporters who wrote the original article that raised the specter of dysfunction and disputes between Kamala Harris and her staff and the White House staff? At one point in the article, it mentions that Joe Biden might appoint her to the Supreme Court. Where does that come from? Well, that has been actually I've heard that's been floated around in the past. It comes from a lot of places. Kamala Harris is one of those politicians who her strengths and her weaknesses are both two sides of the same coin. So, for example, there are people who will whisper and say, well, we'll never like an African-American woman. I, I don't believe that. But there are people who will say that. Then there are people who will say being an African-American woman means you can mobilize a key base of the Democratic Party and that you can have a big constituency in a primary that makes you difficult to beat. So it's again, it's it's two sides of the same coin. Similarly, there are many on the left wing of the party who say this, you know, Kamala is a cop. What she did as D.A. in San Francisco, her, her history as A.G., attorney general in California, she's too right wing. Well, I don't believe that because actually in the Senate she was very progressive. But even if you do believe that, that's exactly why she's a good general election candidate because she's not seen as too left wing. But the result is there are many in the party that don't like her. And then I don't know how to say this any other way, but Kamala is a very smart, outspoken African-American woman who doesn't take any crap. And while I might think those are all admirable qualities, the American media the American political elite, and a lot of Americans aren't used to seeing that in such a high-profile position, and they react negatively to that as well. So that's part of the story. And then just stylistically, sometimes, I mean, I'm from the Bay Area. To me, you know, Kamala Harris is a very familiar type, but the way she uses humor, some of the slang she uses, I find it charming, but a lot of people may find that off-putting. So I think there's a lot, she's she's attracted a lot of people also who, who are critical, also because She's such a target. The road to the White House, if you're a Democrat, runs through Kamala Harris. And the road to the White House, if you're a Republican, in other words, if you're supporting Trump, who will likely be the nominee, also likely goes through Kamala Harris. So there's a lot of people who benefit from seeing her taken down. Well, my sense, Lincoln, of American politics is, particularly at the presidential level, is that you've got to talk right and govern left, because if you talk left, you're dead on arrival. Um, I mean, Barack Obama might be the opposite of that, right? I suppose so. But I mean, uh, I, I, that, was, that was a different time in the sense that there was a total collapse of the economy, etc. Right. Well, um, I mean, I, I just I, I'm, I'm hesitant about, you know, broad sweeping statements like that. But I think Harris can is, you know, in the context of today's Democratic Party, she is not from the kind of Bernie AOC, Elizabeth Warren wing. She just isn't, right? Nor is she from the, the Joe Manchin old old conservative wing. Like Joe Biden, she's more or less in the center of the party, which means, like Joe Biden, that you're going to get criticized from the left. But, and I think she can talk about a center as a Democrat can today. And the Biden administration is at least seeking to govern from the left. Uh, you know, clearly, if you had one or two more reliable Democratic votes in the Senate, that really would be governing from the left. So I don't think that's a problem for Harris. Well, I don't know what your verdict is, but I'll ask you, what did the left of the in the House, the progressives, gain from holding up the infrastructure, bipartisan infrastructure bill for three months and having eventually to go back to status quo ante? And it doesn't look like the greatest tactics to me. 
And it didn't work. It certainly didn't work. But they to to hold to see how to see if you could get any get Joe Manchin to budge. They had to at least go through that exercise, and that's what that was about. And you know, the the left, the, the progressive caucus, and Nancy Pelosi are always involved in this dance, right? Where Pelosi, I think, is more sympathetic to them than a lot of the media would 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 portray. On the other hand, she's got to keep a very a, a very small she has a very small majority, and she's got to keep that caucus together. So I'm sure she probably might have preferred to just pass it and move on, and you know, try to get try to focus on on the on the Build Back Better bill, as it's now being called. But she didn't want to pick that fight with the progressives who felt, one, that maybe they could get something, and two, they have to flex their muscle every now and then. So on balance, it was not it was not the right tactic, but I don't think it was a tragedy. And ultimately, you know, we just have to be very clear, and you said in your introduction, the Biden, the Biden program is not being held up because the Democrats, which is a phrase I don't like to use even, but because the Democratic Party is insufficiently progressive or insufficiently committed to it. It is being held up because of two senators. And one of whom, and, and we have to be honest in that is as much as I may be critical of Joe Manchin, the fact that any Democrat represents West Virginia in the Senate is kind of unusual anyway. So we can't, you know, if he loses, it's going to be to a Republican. But the Democrats underperformed on election day. And Joe Biden came in with a margin that is a, that for, with which he can't govern because of Manchin and Cinema, who've always been this way. So I think it's easy to point fingers at at at, at AOC or at Nancy Pelosi or even Chuck Schumer, but it, it's really that that they couldn't pick up a couple of extra seats in in the November 2020. That's created all of these problems. So then, do you think? And I, I mean, it's kind of pointless rehashing what's happened and what should have happened and what could have been might have and all that speculation. But was Biden in any way mistaken in not simply focusing on COVID and getting that conquered, if indeed you can conquer it? Because one of the ironies or one of the more pernicious factors here is that the reason that COVID lives on and it keeps killing Americans is that there's a constituency of Americans who refuse to get vaccinated and they tend to be Trumpsters. And so I don't know whether by extension you can say that Donald Trump, that the Republican Party has an investment in Americans dying. But that well, the seems evidence certainly suggests that. The it evidence does suggest that. suggests that. Yeah. So, and, and when you say Biden should have focused on COVID, remember Biden came in and said, we're going to get 100 million vaccinations in 100 days. And everyone thought that was impossible. The, the, the number of vaccinations they've gotten out there, I mean, they've been very successful. Now, could they have, in retrospect, crafted a messaging around reaching the kind of vaccine deniers to get them vaccinated? Of course they could have. But that's that really is a case of 2020 hindsight. I, I've said this before on your show, the the persistence of the pandemic. And now we're down. I shouldn't say it like this, but up we were we were at about 2000. We're at about a thousand deaths a day from COVID overwhelmingly among the young vaccinated. And it, look, one death is tragic and a thousand deaths is a thousand times that. But this is no longer a pandemic that is due to a disease entirely. Of course, obviously, ultimately, that's what kills people. This is a pandemic that is due to a political party. And it's not just the anti-vaccine messaging. It's the anti-masking. It's the passing laws that, that, you know, a bar in Florida can't have a masking policy. So this has been a Republican policy. Is it a deliberate effort to kill Americans? I don't know the answer to that question. I can never know what's going on in the brain of Iran DeSantis or Greg Abbott, and frankly, I'm eternally grateful that I never have to be inside the head of a Ron DeSantis or Greg Abbott, but I do know that the result of their actions, the result of their fealty to their cult leader, is that a thousand Americans a day, I mean, you know, a thousand Americans a day are dying of COVID, and it'd be a lot less 
if they didn't have those attitudes. If we, if the Republican Party had got behind the life-saving vaccination effort, we would have a lot fewer deaths. We would have a stronger economy, and we would, and, and Joe Biden would have much better poll numbers. And that is probably why they didn't want to get behind the, the third of those points. Well, but obviously the overriding issue is that the Republicans are attacking American democracy itself and that this yes. is a whole new ball game, and that they are bent upon voter suppression, gerrymandering, attacking poll workers, changing the laws through Republican legislature so that they get to count, certify the vote and change it if they, if they don't like the results. This is happening before us, our eyes. It's a death sentence to democracy and to the Democratic Party. And my feeling is that a lot of the wrangling over these bills, etc., already apparently we've lost the opportunity to get the John Lewis Voting Rights Act done, which would have stopped gerrymandering because it's already starting. I don't know when they're going to get Manchin's voting bill through the Senate. Shouldn't that be the number one priority? I mean, yes. And shouldn't we all be talking about this attack on democracy that well, we have a I, party in this country who's dedicated to destroying the entire historical foundation of American democracy yes, and creating I, I, a kind of one-party state like Orban has in Hungary. I think that is the overriding issue, and I have tried relentlessly to speak about that and to write about that since since really since Trump won the election. So that that is absolutely right, and it is it is appalling to me. And and I look, I mean, I wrote a column about Harrison Buttigieg without mentioning what is really at stake in that 2024 election. But I don't usually write that column. I usually write the columns when you look at what I write, particularly for Brussels Morning, about the crisis. But but the, the political class in America still doesn't recognize the gravity of what you just said. They still want to cover this like, oh, if the Biden bill doesn't pass, the Republicans might win back control of the House, and that's just the way the political system goes, without saying that if the Republicans win back control of the House, Joe Biden will probably be impeached by April 1st, 2023, not convicted in the Senate, but impeached in the House. They'll be doing investigations about how Anthony Fauci tried to kill Americans by telling lies about COVID, which is not exactly what happened at all, but they'll be doing that. They'll be investigating Harris and Biden and probably Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama 10 ways till Sunday. And they will continue and, and there will be no advancement on things like like voting rights. And in fact, there'll be further restrictions. So the. The stakes here are, are so high, and, and the basic framework of American politics is now where small-D democracy is the main issue over which Americans are fighting, and where it is very partisan. To me, it is appalling that you would – not you, but that the media would ever put a Republican politician on television and not put under and, – and ask them and, and not put you know, the cry on underneath complicit in, in a disinformation campaign about the election when you put someone like Ted Cruz on to call the Democrat socialists. But they're just, the media, the political elite, just doesn't want to do that. They want to go back to the both sidesism and back to the false equivalencies that have framed how they've looked at politics for, for decades. And it just is the absolute wrong framework. Uh, here we are in 2021. And recently, the Republican senator from Wyoming, Barrasso, was asked about the mob wanting to kill hang Mike Pence, and he wouldn't condemn that. He would not condemn That's Trump and the mob, because Trump basically admitted in his interview with Jonathan Carl of ABC for his latest book that he didn't think it was a big deal, you know, that, uh, of course, they weren't going to hang him, you know. Well, but it's not, 
it's not just Donald Trump. Right? I mean, I want to be clear about this. The official position of the Republican Party is it isn't a big deal that January 6th happened. It isn't a big deal that Congressman Paul Gosar tweeted this video of him you know, pretending to, to kill AOC. None of this is a big deal. And it's not just Donald Trump. We say Barrasso says that because he's afraid of Trump. This one is Lindsey Graham is afraid of Trump. They are not. They are probably afraid of Trump. But this is who they are. This is who they are. The, Trump is the Republican Party, is the MAGA cult, is every Republican elected official who doesn't speak out against it. It doesn't matter why they're doing it. They're doing it. And that is the depth of the threat. And, you know, it may seem like a an article about, you know, what might a Harris Buttigieg ticket look like is 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 not relevant to this. But one of the points I am trying to make in that argument is in that article is that we need to understand that the marginal difference, the kind of parlor game of would so-and-so be a better nominee is not worth it. The most important thing now is to have the Biden presidency succeed, not because we love Joe Biden necessarily, not because you may not love all of his policies, but because if he doesn't, if his party doesn't get reelected, it is the end of American democracy to the extent that we still have American democracy right now. And in many ways, we don't. We no longer meet those standards, uh, international standards of democracy, but it will get exponentially worse if the Democrats aren't in the White House come 2025. Well, at the street level of politics, I'm even more alarmed than I am about at the governmental level where you, you know, you've got Trump running the GOP and all of this voter suppression going on. And frankly, if Trump is just doing, doing a grift, which is what he's probably doing, raising money, and he may at the end of the day not want to run again uh, because he wouldn't want to face a second defeat. But if they do sufficient voter suppression, it won't matter. He'll, of course he will get in. But the other guy that you mentioned earlier, Ron DeSantis, he's in many ways more dangerous than Trump, isn't he? Because he's smart and I mean, clever. I think there's, he, a, there's a trade-off in the, in the kind of authoritarian movement or the fascist movement, depending on, on how you see it, which is there are people who are smarter than Donald Trump. And I think maybe... Maybe 330 million Americans would meet that, would fit in that category. Um, but, but there are a lot fewer people who are more, and it's an odd use of the word, but more charismatic than Trump. Trump has a rapport with the members of his cult, with the base of the Republican Party, that a Ron DeSantis or a Ted Cruz would never have, right? Ted Cruz, just to pick on, I know it's picking on someone who is, you know, uh, kind of a, a pathetic person, a kind of a, a hapless, pathetic guy, but... Ted Cruz is earnestly picking a fight with an eight-foot-tall fictional bird. That is the <laughs> level of kind of rapport with the voters and charisma that Ted Cruz brings to the table. So a Hawley, a Cruz, they don't have that rapport. On the other hand, they would be much better at really constructing a lasting authoritarian movement, a lasting authoritarian government. And that, that's a trade-off. So I don't know who I fear more, Trump, DeSantis, Hawley. I, I, don't, I don't know. But they're all very, very dangerous, and they all are committed to destroying democracy in any meaningful sense of the word in the United States. And we need to start saying that and repeating that and normalizing that reality, because if we fall back into the easy of both sidesism and, oh, this bill is too far left, and can they have the votes without reminding us of this every day, we are doing their work for them. But they're very busy at every level. I mean, at the local level, with school boards, with changing election boards, it's happening at an extraordinary pace, the movement towards a one-party fascist state. Now, when I mentioned earlier, Lincoln, that what frightens me more is what's happening at the politics at the street level, do you think that 
I mean, obviously, the, the verdict in the Ahmad Aubrey case went the right way, that the shooter was guilty on all counts, and the father of the shooter and his companion who videotaped it, they were guilty on most counts. But if you go back to written, the Rittenhouse verdict, my sense is that in many ways, that's a signal that there's an open season on left-wing demonstrators and that right-wing vigilantes are, are now heroes. And you have recent polls indicating that about 30% of Republicans think that violence will happen. And about 18% believe that violence will be necessary for patriots to save the Amer- save the American way of life or their idea of the American way of life. So when you have all of these people out there in the militia movements and the people that storm the Capitol and the 18% of Republicans uh, who believe violence will be necessary, they keep talking about civil war. So well, do you think that there's a possibility that at the political level, you've got voter suppression and, one, and a move towards a one-party state. But at the street level, you've got this wild card of violence. That's right. And, and it's not the potential for violence. The violence is happening. The violence is happening when people shout down someone at a school board, when people threaten someone, we know where you live because you wanted to be voted for the mask mandate, right? The violence is happening when a white supremacist shooter walks into a church in South Carolina, a synagogue in in Pennsylvania or or in Poway, California, right? The violence is already there. It is already part of the Republican strategy. It starts when Donald Trump tells his supporters to beat up a, a protester at one of his rallies, right? So the violence is already part of their approach. Will it get worse? Probably. Will will it be civil war? I don't like to use that term because I think for Americans, civil war evokes, you know, the 1860s with the gray and the blue on one side. And that's not what America, what the next civil war will look like. But will it lead to mass, to to disorder? Yes. To the breakdown of structures and the breakdown of rule of law? Very possibly. And with that comes violence, comes many premature deaths and a dramatic and a collapse of the economy. And that isn't what is at what's stake here, and the Republican Party seems okay with that. Well, just in closing, then, could you make the case that a secession is already underway with the right wing, the red states, seceding? That they simply do not want to live with the rest of us. They don't want to live in a multicultural, multiracial America. Is that what's happening to this country? And that they are going to – they're engineering a system of minority rule so that they will hold on to power indefinitely and the rest of us will become second-class citizens. That is certainly their agenda. And whether that is because – and certainly in the red states that they control, that is what will happen. Think about things like access to abortion, access to the vote, right? They they are clearly uh, putting – they are clearly putting that system in place. Now – the other thing I would point out is that, you know, these states are a very false construct. So a state like Texas, which is perhaps the best example of what what the new American apartheid might look like, because through gerrymandering and voter suppression, they have a is far more conservative. If you had free and fair elections in Texas, you'd probably have a Democratic governor. Right? Beto O'Rourke would win relatively handily. You'd have a Democratic legislature. So we're seeing we're seeing that. But what we also see in Texas is that these red states have a lot of minorities in them, a lot of people who don't want to be governed by the far right. But that is what's happening. And the last thing I would say is that when country when when a country begins to break down, you have to look at things that we as Americans aren't really used to looking at, like where are the military bases? Who ends up getting control of that? So 
the 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 path from here to the, whether you want to call it civil war, collapse, chaos, whatever word you want to use, first of all, it may not happen. But we are now talking about this in a much more realistic way than we would have, in a much more uh, fearful and, and, and sincere way than we would have five or six years ago. So the 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 ball is already rolling down the hill, and and whether we can stop it or not, I don't know. But that is what's at stake, and that is where this ends up. And and one last thought: in politics, as in life, what is unimaginable today, we can look back tomorrow, uh, two days later, and say it was inevitable. And that is this. That is what is. That is what is at stake here. Today, it is unimaginable that the United States could collapse. But it's not hard to think that in 2030, we'd be saying, well, of course, it was inevitable because of Trump, because of, of the racial tension, because of the power of the authoritarian movement. So we have to do everything we can to stop that because nobody wins that civil war. Well, Lincoln Mitchell, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Lincoln Mitchell, who's a professor of political science at Columbia University, where he also serves as an associate scholar in the Salzman Institute of War and Peace Studies. He's the author of numerous books on the former Soviet states, baseball and democracy, the latest of which is The Giants and Their City, Major League Baseball in San Francisco, 1976 to 1992. And he has an article at CNN, Harris and Buttigieg Could Be Allies Instead of Rivals. We're going to take a brief station break and back discussing the verdicts in the Ahmed Arbery case where today all three white men were found guilty of killing a black man. I'm going to tell all you fascists you may be surprised People all over this world are getting organized and bound to lose You fascists are bound to lose Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Echo Yanka, who is a professor of law at the Cardoza School of Law at Yeshiva University, whose research focuses on criminal law and theory, political theory, policing, and voting rights. He also serves on the executive board of the Innocence Project and the American Constitution Society's New York chapter. And his publications include A Paradox in Overcriminalization and Good Guys and Bad Guys, Punishing Character, Equality and the Irrelevance of Moral Character to Criminal Punishment. Welcome to Background Briefing, Echo Yanka. Thanks for having me back. Well, thanks for joining us again, Echo. And the verdict came down in the trial in Georgia of Travis McMichael, the man who fatally shot Ahmed Arbery and his father, Greg McMichael, and their friend, William Roddy Bryan. Travis McMichael was guilty on all counts, and his father and his friend, William Roddy Bryan, on most counts. So we've had that verdict, which is pretty much in stark contrast to the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict, and in, in between those two, there was a verdict in the Unite the Right trial in Charlottesville, where those organizers of the Unite the Trial, Unite the Right trial in Charlottesville of the neo-Nazis uh, with their tiki torches shouting, the Jews will not replace us, etc. They were fined fairly heftily. I don't know that they've necessarily got the funds to pay for it, but it's a tactic that was used to pretty much put the Ku Klux Klan out of business. So a mixed sort of bag of results there. But in general, 
the atmosphere in this country, in this very divided country, is really disturbing. And I'm wondering whether you feel that particularly the verdict today in Georgia will be a deterrent against right-wing violence, which the FBI considers our greatest domestic threat. I I found it a satisfying, if not satisfying verdict, a relieving one. Um, it is it is amazing how no matter what you tell yourself to expect or no matter how much you think you can handle it, just the prospect of somebody being able to read a black man jogging as by itself dangerous, to be able to hunt him down and then claim self-defense. And that, that was just, it would have been too much to bear. So um, there's a sense in which you study these things as a legal scholar and try to think about them, um, it, not dispassionately, but clearly. And then there's also the moment where you just realize how much of your your own heart and soul and your own emotions and your own standing as a black man does feel implicated by these things. And so, so I do think those are, you know, that is a powerful verdict um, and was a very affecting one. Well, in terms of contrast, there's no question that the prosecutor in the Kyle Rittenhouse case did not do well, to put it politely. But in contrast, the prosecutor in this case in Georgia she was very effective. What, what did you think? I think you're right. I mean, you look, I have a lot of friends who um, are defense lawyers and frankly point out that um, the Rittenhouse case is a, is a reminder of how much of the state's power is wielded through plea bargaining, right? So there's a kind of feeling if the state actually had to prove all its cases, look what you actually get. And, and that was a kind of widely held um, lack of respect for for the actual lawyering they saw in the Rittenhouse case. So I agree with you there. Um, I also think you know we shouldn't underestimate the quality of the lawyering um, in, in the Arbery case, which is you know they were facing a jury that was not just white, but a jury that the judge said looked very much like one that was chosen. Um, because of intentional racial discrimination, and they had to put that behind them and still trust that the jury could um, could view the facts and, and seek justice. And, and that takes a certain kind of self-possession, and I think, I think that the prosecutors in Georgia showed that. Well, there is, of course, a history to this case, which really wasn't, <laughs> wouldn't have been a case, but for the fact that William Roddy Bryan videotaped what happened and then what happened immediately after the killing of Ahmed Aubrey the police showed up and turned out that the McMichaels particularly the father he was an ex-policeman and he was also working for the police as an investigator and so they were all very chummy and buddy buddy so no forensics showed up nothing they just sort of said okay you know there's a black man dead and Whatever these guys told them, they believed. And then it went nowhere with the local district attorney not even wanting to rule on it. And it was only until the videotape was leaked first to a radio station, then it became widely available, that it actually became a trial. So to that extent, we should be looking, surely, at the fact that we still have vestiges of Jim Crow in this country. 
There's no question. I mean, if you ask me the most painful part of that trial, it's precisely the one you put your finger on. Keep in mind, not just one, but two different prosecutors looked at that video. They, unlike us, right, who were outraged once we finally had the video in our hands, they looked at that video. And as you point out, a video that was not shot by bystanders or caught accidentally on camera, a video that was shot by the people committing the crime as though they were on some sort of joyride or vigilante hunt, right? A sort of gleeful, hey, we'll videotape this as we do it, um, arrogance. They looked at that video and they decided that no crime had been committed, that this was utterly justified and indeed didn't warrant an arrest. These three men were walking around for weeks before the arrest was made. And it was the relentless focus of Ahmad Arbery's family in particular, their refusal to get blown off, their refusal to believe lies about their son and, and um, just a kind of natural suspicion that a black man jogging is, is a rightful target of somebody's racist aim. Um, and finally getting national newspapers involved in it, um, finally getting the New York Times and, and I should say relentless um, local coverage that deserves huge amounts of credit. That's what finally made this a case. Otherwise, this would have disappeared into the annals of history. Um, another black community that would have felt betrayed and lied to um, would simply be dismissed as, as making up complaints. And again, I'm speaking with Eka Yanka, who's a professor of law at the Cardoza School of Law at Yeshiva University, whose research focuses on criminal law and theory, political theory, policing and voting rights. He also serves on the executive board of the Innocence Project and the American Constitution Society's New York chapter. And his publications include A Paradox of Overcriminalization and Good Guys and Bad Guys, Punishing Character Equality and the Irrelevance of Moral Character to Criminal Punishment. So just to broaden out the discussion, uh, Echo, it's quite concerning what happened following the Kyle Rittenhouse case. You know, he actually went down to Mar-a-Lago and was hosted by Donald Trump. He's being treated like a hero on uh, the right-wing media, in particular on Fox News, where he's appeared with Tucker Carlson and again being treated as a hero. It's sort of sick in a way, the idea that somebody's a hero for murdering two young men and wounding a third and doing so with an assault rifle, which he was carrying illegally. They shot the first guy four times and the second guy shot him once in the head and the third guy almost blew his arm off. And the police, after he wandered off strutting down the street with his assault rifle, he ran into the police and told them that he was involved in the shooting and they, instead of arresting him, they told him to go home. And... So again, it sort of has a little bit of echoes of what we were just talking about with the Ahmed Albury crisis, where it took two months for this case to even become a case because of the local kind of cover-up by these racist cops and prosecutors. Yeah, look, there's no question. I mean, what these cases really show, um, and, and your point is the exact right one, um, when we talk about the fact that this would not have been considered a case, is that there's a background justification that armed men, in particular armed white men policing moments of black um, black being or black anger, right? So it's not just the question of what the race of the people that Rittenhouse shot was, right? The point is that Rittenhouse was led to believe at 17 that he was a hero if he could take what felt, what feels and looks like a machine gun to make sure that 
black protesters are kept in their place, that there's something innately possible about policing and governing with vigilante tactics, black people. And the same thing is true. The same thing was true in Georgia. That's the through line that ties these cases together. And when we ask, where does that sense comes from? It comes from the fact that police can watch you walk around with this machine gun, having shot people and say, it's fine. We are on your side. We get it. You're helping us. Good job, buddy. Go home. It comes from the fact that a prosecutor can see this video and say, I don't see a crime here. You're just doing what citizens are allowed to do, govern black bodies. And if one of them ends up dead, well, that's just an accident. Right? It's that legalized sense that is the is in the fabric. That's the thing that's in the fabric that causes untold black anger and sorrow. So do you think that this could have wider repercussions in terms of obviously the self-defense laws have to be looked at, particularly the one in Wisconsin. And and the same, I believe, in Georgia as well, where life essentially is cheap. They obviously have to be looked at. But it seems to me that is this sig- sending a signal, not so much the verdict today, or I guess it, in a way it sends the opposite signal, but the earlier verdict on Rittenhouse, that left-wing protest is a fair game and that right-wing vigilantes are heroes? I, I mean, look, I think that's what the background very much was, and, and that's why this verdict helps, right? It, it's not just, you know, as everybody sadly comments and rightfully comments, none of this brings Ahmaud Arbery back. And so it, it's breaking up the, the feeling that you're fundamentally in the right if you're governing black bodies. If you're in St. Louis and a wealthy white couple and you're pointing guns at black people peacefully marching by, but by the grace of God, is not an Ahmad Aubrey story. So it's this incredibly wealthy couple. They have essentially, you know, a mansion in St. Louis. And it turns out that black protesters, much like in the Rittenhouse case, are just walking through their neighborhood to go march in support of the Black Lives Matter uh, movement. And this couple takes their weapons, right? So the man takes what looks like a machine gun and his wife takes a pistol and they stand on their porch and they just aim their weapons at these black, uh, they're not even black marchers at this point. They're just black people walking to a march and they aim their guns in St. Louis at protesters slash marchers and threatening them. We know, you know, sort of just wildly aiming their gun. It's the kind of behavior for which countless black people would be put in jail, right? I mean, you know, I know lots of defense lawyers who spend their time defending somebody who did much less than that. And it took video of this getting out before they were finally prosecuted under criminal assault charges. You can't just point automatic weapons at people for walking through your neighborhood. Um, and but for an accident or somebody reacting to them or trying to take the gun away from them, we would have a story like Maude Arbery. So what happens to them? Well, they're just lionized by the right-wing press. Um, they become heroes. They're invited to speak at the Republican National Convention. And even after they're convicted, the mayor, of, excuse me, the governor of Missouri eventually pardons them. So it really speaks to your point that using ready, uh, latent violence to govern black people, in particular when they have the nerve to protest their own, their own angers, fears, and violence aimed at them, is completely winked at by the system as an appropriate thing to do. And so these verdicts take a crack at that. And so too, your point about the Charlottesville verdicts, 
The point is to stop the next person from grabbing their gun and jumping in the car as though they had the right to do so, or stop the next group of protesters from gleefully planning to to lay siege on a college town because they can, right? Every verdict that sends a message that that background of white supremacy is not accessible, is not just immoral, but not legal. That's, that's the step forward. So given what we've been discussing here, is there a possibility that when you combine what we've been talking about with the recent polls that indicated that about 30% of Republicans believe that violence will happen in politics and 18% believe that violence will be necessary for patriots to take back their country. Is there a possibility that this can translate into kind of political street violence as we get more into a political year? We already have a highly polarized polity to begin with and if this is the atmospherics that we're going into the 2022 elections, I mean, if so many people on the right, particularly on the far right, sort of have almost wishful thinking about about civil war, they keep talking about it all the time. I mean, can we talk ourselves into some kind of terrible conflagration in this country? Yeah, I mean, so I, what I can say is I pray not, and frankly, I pray that if the law has um, any expressive function, it reminds people that these actions are just impermissible. You're not allowed to see a black man running and simply decide that you, through your vigilante justice, will hold him as you see fit. Um, but, Ian, I, I, I share your concern. Look, I remember watching the day after the election, the, the few days after the election, hundreds of people descending, for example, on Detroit, where black votes were being counted, to protest the votes being counted, including lots of them being armed with long guns. Um, so the kind of idea, the background idea that leads to a Rittenhouse or leads to an Aubrey, where people just assume that their individualized violence can police the lines of black political power or freedom, um, that baseline assumption is really dangerous. And it's that baseline assumption that I hope the Aubrey verdict has chipped away at. So, given the the atmospherics in our politics, and we're talking largely about at the street level, but shifting to the kind of top level, if you will, and as I mentioned, you know, Donald Trump met with Rittenhouse and down in Mar-a-Lago and said he's a fine young man, etc. He controls the GOP. He's running again, or at least he says he's running again, and his whole party's engaged in massive voter suppression to the point where. They may well win without, <laughs> you know, they'd rather cheat than compete. And uh, mm -hmm. we may have a one-party state in this country. So that's about as bad as it gets. But short of that, my fear is that unless there's some serious punishment meted out to the people involved in planning and executing the January 6th insurrection, and this involves the people who are being now subpoenaed by the House Select Committee investigating January the 6th, the people like Roger Stone and Steve Bannon, who, of course, defied the subpoena and was recently arrested by the FBI uh, because the Justice Department finally stepped in. Do you feel that, just like the verdict today in the Ahmed Arbery case, may well be helpful as a deterrent? Surely there has to be a deterrent at the highest level 
to stop this this move towards American fascism. Yeah, I, I think that's right. But I think I mean part of what I part of what I take from your point is really to remind us that this is a kind of thoroughgoing battle. And by this, I don't mean to encourage the sort of militaristic or warlike language. But what I mean is that it's it's a kind of um, political uh, struggle that must be that must be conducted up and down uh, the ladder, right? So it's not just courthouses. It, it is, look, it's in part the DOJ trying the people who decided to go into our capital and not just overturn things, but smear feces all over the place and try to literally stop an election count and maybe harm elected officials. But it's also a kind of collective need to break a fever, um, the kind of fever that lionizes these people and calls them patriots after it's over, rather than saying this is unacceptable, that puts Rittenhouse on Fox News the day after and calls him a hero, that makes these things seem over and over like cases of martyrdom. I mean, we have to find ways of having you know, important pitch disagreements without a background of thinking low-level fascist violence or the ominous threat of uh, uh, forever racialized violence counts as legitimate. And I, I take it that that can only be done if, you know, up and down the political ladder, we somehow break this fever, um, in part represented by Trump, that, um, but, but frankly, Trump is, you know, the symbol, not the, not the source, that this kind of battle is, is to be ready and waged uh, with gun, long guns and, and um, pickup trucks. Yeah, but, but for... The GOP Congresswoman Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, the entire Republican Party seems to have have adopted the attitude that January the sixth was no big deal. Even in spite of the fact that Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell both spoke out vigorously against Trump and against the insurgents on yeah. the very day, and their lives were threatened. This this is <laughs> this is the part that I find mind boggling. Echo is these Congress people were physically threatened. They were quaking yeah, no. in fear. They were being protected by Capitol Police. And now they're turning around and vilifying the Capitol Police who protected them and making heroes out of the insurgents who threatened their lives. And, want, and by the way, who were explicitly threatened to hang the vice president, who's a yeah, Republican. No, it's, it's it's extraordinary cowardice. It really is. It's, it's, you know, there is this kind of moment where it seems impossible that they don't realize that there are fates worse than losing an election. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you've got to not just, I always think not just look yourself in the mirror. You have to think of what you're going to say to your grandchildren one day when they ask you, what were you doing in these moments? Um, and the idea that in the moment when it was called for, they were clearly, um, not just critical, but they were clearly uh, pointing out this incredible wrong, the um, the intolerability of it, the evil of it. But the moment somebody, you know, takes a poll and shows them that this could cost them votes, you know, what little semblance of moral judgment they had just evaporates. It's just incredible. I don't know what to make of this kind of disappointment. I mean, you know, I... I frankly, I've always longed for and and valued having people we can disagree with in, in good faith, and this just this is not it. 
So just in the last uh, minute then, do you feel that at least, I don't, I don't want to be pessimistic here, at least what happened today in Georgia is, a, is obviously is a turn in the right direction. Could it be built upon? I mean, could you make examples of Roger Stone and Steve Bannon and others to break the fever, as you've put it? Yeah, I hope so. I hope what we see is, you know, if there's a drumbeat of these things, and, and of course it's not, you know, history is not simplistic and it doesn't rise in one wave. There are movements and setbacks. Uh, and the Rittenhouse case had its own complications, including a very badly worded law um, and a judge who frankly was uh, not at all interested in the conviction. But I hope what we see is data point after data point. You don't get to chase down this black man. You don't get to support this kind of insurrection. You're going to be politically accountable if you foment these kind of foment these kind of actions. Um, and if you see it from Steve Bannon to Roger Stone to um, the Capitol protesters to Rittenhouse um, to a sheriff that you know. Uh, shoots an unarmed black man. I hope what happens is that, as you, as we were saying, the fever breaks. We internalize sort of um, a minimal standard beyond a line which you cannot cross, or we recover what I think all of us had thought um, were lines you cannot cross. Um, and that's why I say it's a fight up and down the political, up and down the political ladder. Um, People underestimate how dangerous it is to have lost lines of basic decency and legality, which we will not tolerate being crossed. Well, Eka Yanka, I thank you so much for joining us here today. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Eka Yanka, who's a professor of law at the Cardoza School of Law at Yeshiva University, whose research focuses on criminal law and theory, political theory, policing, and voting rights. He also serves on the executive board of the Innocence Project and the American Constitution Society's New York chapter, and his publications include A Paradox in Overcriminalization and Good Guys and Bad Guys, Punishing Character, Equality, and the Irrelevance of Moral Character to Criminal Punishment. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. If you missed any of today's program or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage you to rate and review us on those platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Martin Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half